Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who longs to have his teeth brushed by Onichan, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? Yo, you got to cut that. <laughs> we, can't, we, we can't use that on the podcast. We were just having a long discussion about Monogatari today and we were just talking about one of its best parts, you know? No, I, that is easily the worst part of Monogatari and I don't recommend that anybody goes onto YouTube and types in toothbrush seed in Monogatari and watches it. Do, do not do that, please. This is like when anyone says, hey, do not do this. Yeah. You're subtly egging them no, on. No, I am 100% being serious. Do not do that. <laughs> oh, man. Well, in today's episode, Yanni and I are going to do a deep dive into another show that blew us away with its seemingly lighthearted animation, but really dark themes, Made in Abyss. We're going to discuss the lore and world buildup in the show, talk through our favorite episodes in the first season, and touch on the recent sequel movie. So let's get into it. So Yanni, I want to set up this episode by talking about expectations, because Made in Abyss is a show that plays on its viewers' expectations and presents a story that's thoroughly at odds with the character designs, dialogue, and art style. Walk me through what you expected when you watched the first show and how the story delivered or deviated from what you thought would happen. I first got Made in Abyss recommended a little bit after it came out, I think it was 2017, so I already had an idea about what it was about and the fact that there is sort of this juxtaposition between the way the show looks and some of the darker themes in the show and how brutal the world that's presented in the show is. But I knew that it was very good. I knew that it was pure fantasy. So I, I was pretty excited to see it. But at the same time, a little bit, I think, apprehensive about, okay, like how much kind of horror elements am I going to get here? I'm not the biggest horror gore fan, but it did really, really work for me in the show. I mean, we're doing a whole podcast about it pretty early on. So clearly it's a show we both really liked. And for me, was one of my favorites from that year, which was one of the first years I really started watching seasonally. And still to this day is a show I recommend to people and the show that I really, really think of fondly. It was one of the first shows that I had seen that had such contrasting elements. And I don't really think I've seen a show that had that type of contrasting structure, you know, as, as much as Made in Abyss. We really start off with this very lighthearted animation style and these chibi characters, which yeah. are so at odds with the actual gravity of the adventure and the themes and the elements here. And, and we'll definitely discuss that as we go along. Let's, before we do a deep dive into individual episodes, talk about the general feelings. So do you want to talk a little bit about how this was such a refreshing take from previous seasons or things that you had seen? Yeah, this, this show really was, for me, a breath of fresh air. And I think a lot of that comes down to its genre. So anime recently, as we've talked about on the podcast before, has been very dominated by isekai. And so every sort of fantasy style adventure has felt like, okay, MC gets transported to another world and there's some kind of medieval style RPG system in place and usually there's some twist on that formula and that's what we get pretty much like 10 times a season. I'm loving <laughs> it. It kind of feels like. But anime used to be, especially in the 90s, a lot about pure fantasy. And for me, Made in Abyss feels like a return to that where you're just getting lost in this really, really 
creative, unique world with tons of different creatures and different environments. And we'll talk about the lore and the structure of of the abyss in a second. But I think the way the world is set up and the lore is set up really sets up the show well to explore this fantasy world. I think we're really speaking here as if we're getting old and talking (laughs) about how anime used to be back in the good old days, you know? No, but I think you're right. There are many, many isekai in the current rendition of what anime is. And I think we're moving away from that. Are we? I think we are. Are I think we're seeing more originals. Like I think this season is a great example of that. But at least here, at least in Maiden Abyss, we saw a turn from, as you said, what we had been seeing in recent seasons and got something that was so different and unique and refreshing. And I want to talk about this and I want to talk about the story because it's graphic and it's scary. And this juxtaposition that we're seeing between things like the character designs and the the levity of the dialogue and the light color palette with that type of horror and those graphic elements are something that drew me in. But it takes a while for this development to actually happen. So let me talk about the animation and the story for a little bit. The most interesting part of Maiden Abyss for me is not the story. And the story is really minimalist. It it seems to have a a goal that's simple, but it's not for the goal that I'm continuing to watch this. It's for the world building. It's for the adventure. What makes Maiden Abyss so fascinating to watch is that the animation does an incredible job of delivering on the scale and the detail of the world that we're setting up. I can see where you're coming from with that because I also agree. I mean, when we were praying for this podcast, I messaged you about this and I was like, okay, it's been a little bit since I watched the original series. I watched the movie a little bit more recently, but I was reading up on the lore, the mechanics of the world, like looking up all photos of the creatures that Rico and Reg encounter. And I was like, wow, the the world building here is fucking awesome. And I remember the first time I watched it being just completely sucked into the world and looking at you know the different environments in each layer of the abyss like that concept to me is just very very appealing so i totally get where you're coming from i think i'm here mostly for the world building too but i think you have to add into that that the characters are very interesting and the character designs are cool and unique and the goal is simplistic i mean it's basically just rico wants to find her mom because she knows something about reg and she's like never seen her because she's an orphan but a lot of fantasy stories i think i mean if you think something like lord of the rings or any other classic fantasy movie or franchise, the call to adventure is pretty simple in most cases. And it's really the journey of the adventure as as cliche as that sounds. That's really what makes you keep coming back to whatever the story is. I think that's true. I I do think that as a high fantasy show, this show delivers on all of those other elements. I think the characters are very compelling and very interesting. We'll talk a little bit about them when we talk about the humanity of these characters. But at least for now, continuing on in this vein of animation versus story, you see that so early on. You see that even in episode one, and it shines when we get that first shot of the entirety of the abyss. And this is like the pinnacle moment of even episode one. And I think of probably the entire series for me, when we see the lighting and detail of that scene where we're getting the scope of the full abyss, and that's accompanied by this epic soundtrack moment by Kevin Pankin, it really gave me goosebumps in anticipation of what this show could deliver and what it had in store for us. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I wrote this down a little bit later in our show notes, but basically echoing the, the exact same thing that you're mentioning. I don't think I'll ever forget that shot of Rico and Reg from behind as she sort of takes him up this hill right as the sun is rising and, and the really, really amazing Kevin Penkin OST is playing in the background. You just see the whole abyss light up and it it really brings to mind a bunch of questions like what's in the abyss? It makes it feel like it's the start of an adventure. It's it's a really great moment to cap off that first episode and make you want to discover what's in the abyss with the characters. Yeah, and as we explore deeper with these characters, I was blown away, absolutely blown away by the background yeah, it's art. That's really good. Whenever the characters enter a new layer, I think this is just a really nice touch. We get this panoramic view of that entire layer, as well as a little exposition on screen with what that layer is and where we're descending to. And the landscapes for me are often just outright breathtaking. These dense forests that we're seeing, these serene waterfalls, these vast open chasms, chasms. I don't even know how you're going to say it. I'm going to be you for once. How do we say this? Yeah, I don't Um, know what's correct here. We'll mention specific instances when we go through each episode. But here, at least, I wanted to make two shout outs. And those are to the art director, Osamu Masuyama, and the creature designer, Ku Yoshinari. So Masuyama has worked on the background art for a number of Ghibli and Shinkai films, including Howl's Moving Castle, including Your Name and Weathering With You, as well as being an art producer on, and now I'm going to ask you to keep your pants on, but (laughs) Madoka Magica. And Yoshinari has been a key animator for shows like March Comes Like a Lion and Kizu Monogatari. So they both have a number of really well-known series under their belts, and it's very clear from the set designs and character animations that these animators are truly exceptional, and they are driving the show forward. So I'm glad that you did a little research and dug this up, because these are things that I did not know, and I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't know them, considering Madoka Magica, Mark Comes in Like a Lion, Kizumonogatari all come from Shaft, which is one of my favorite studios and three of my favorite shows slash franchises ever. So I'm glad you brought this up. I also think it's generally important. You know, we often talk about just the studio or just the production team, and it is really nice and I think important to recognize the hard work that art producers and creature designers and animators and all the people involved in the making of anime, all the roles that they have, I think it's important to recognize those and give shout outs to individual artists as well. So I'm, I'm glad you did this. I don't, think we, just, I don't think we notice that as often. I, at least I haven't noticed it as often and as deeply as I did in Maiden Abyss because there at least the creatures are something that are so unique and diverse and every layer has interesting threats that our characters have to face. We talk about creatures like the orb piercer and the amount of detail that goes into those creatures, like the spines on them, the motions, the fluidity of all these things. I think they really need a shout out here. No, I think it's super important. I mean, I guess the reason I never associated those other shows with with here is I I think the studio, I think this is Kinema Citrus, which is not... I've barely heard yeah, of it's not. Yeah, a, it's not a studio. Like, if I were to see a show that's produced by Shaft or that's produced by KyoAni or something like that, then maybe I'll look through the names because I know so many other productions from those studios that I'm likely to recognize who the director is or some of the key animators. But in this specific case, I just wouldn't have even made that association. But of course, the anime industry uses a lot of freelancers, borrows animators from, from different studios. And so... It makes sense that people work on a lot of things. So anyway, thanks yeah. for the shout out. I think, I, I think the only other notable work they've really done is Rising of the Shield Hero. And uh, I don't know if you're watching that isekai. I, I am but... not watching that isekai, but I know it's well liked among most fans of isekai. Controversial, but <laughs> yeah, a little bit. All right. You want to talk about the lore a little bit? 
Okay, yeah, so I think it's important for everybody listening that we set up the lore of the world and have a common ground and foundation for how the mechanics work and how we can then talk about the story and, and the episodes, which we'll get into right after this. So we mentioned the abyss a lot, so what actually is it? So the abyss is just basically exactly what it sounds like, a colossal pit that has a bunch of distinct layers. And like we mentioned, each layer has a different ecosystem, a different environment, different creatures, and, and different threats that, that we'll get into. There's a town called Orth that was founded at the Rim of the Abyss to allow for its exploration by delvers. And many areas of the Abyss in each layer have not been fully explored yet. So there's basically this town that is just providing resources for people diving into the Abyss and trying to explore. And people are motivated to explore it because there are treasures called relics inside that have basically magical powers. Uh, some can be sold for a lot of money. So there's some motivation other than just the intrinsic nature to sort of want to explore. Yeah. And I think this is part of the goal as well through the show, identifying what are the relics? What is the civilization that created them? Along the way, we're getting some insight into what these relics are, what the civilization could have been. And we're also exploring the magic. So there, there are many magical elements here. There's two main ones that we get to see, which are the force field that circle the abyss as well as the curse. Yeah, so the force field that you mentioned is basically this mysterious energy source that sort of powers the abyss. And when you get like overhead shots of the abyss in some of the first few episodes, you can kind of see how this would work. And then the second one you mentioned is the curse of the abyss. So basically that manifests through something called the strain of ascension, which means that if you move upwards in the abyss, you manifest some symptoms depending on how deep you are in the abyss and the symptoms that you develop get worse the deeper into the abyss you travel so these can be something pretty not serious like nausea or dizziness to having a complete loss of senses to a complete loss of humanity or death so there's a full range of symptoms that you can experience from moving up layers in the abyss part of why other than all the creatures that live there it's so dangerous to delve into the abyss. and i thought that was a really cool mechanic right because cool. there there is a real world counterpart to this which is decompression sickness or the bends for you know anybody that knows anything about diving but it's the diversity of these consequences, how they seem to be segregated by layer. And, you know, as we move deeper into the layers, moving upwards results in very, very different effects. The counterpart is the blessing of the abyss. And so as we move through the story and as we get into the movie, which we'll talk about later, there are other elements of the curse that we're beginning to explore. So it is really getting developed, but there are many other aspects of it that we still need to explore as viewers. Yeah, I think that also... Uh, it's important to note that all living things, so not just the humans that dive into the abyss, but actually all organisms are affected in one way or another by the curse of the abyss. But the creatures that live in the abyss have found ways to cope with the curse and develop some sort of immunity or functions and mechanisms that allow them to circumvent its effects. And I think that's also very clever because you're building the lore and the magical elements directly into all of the creatures that inhabit the abyss and that sort of is important for your immersion into the story okay what have we not covered i think we haven't covered delvers so we, we should do that so there's basically a specific profession for people that dive into the abyss to explore it and, and find treasures these are called delvers or, or cave raiders and they're segregated into classes so there are bells these are novices that have no whistles the whistle basically color or shape dictates what level of of cave raider or delver you are so the bells are just novices 
The red whistles are apprentices. So each color, each whistle color also dictates how deep into the abyss you are technically allowed to go. So the red whistles can only descend into the first layer, which is right below the town of Orth. When you first meet Rico and her friends, they're all red whistles. There are also then blue whistles. These are sort of the adepts. They can go down into the second layer. There are moons. These are teachers that teach some of the other lower ranking divers. And they can descend into the third or the fourth layer. Black whistles are basically known as the experts. They can descend to the fourth or the fifth layer. And then the white whistles are the legends. There are very few of them, and they can descend all the way to the sixth layer and even beyond. And the white whistles are interesting because anything that they say is basically considered fact by the people of Orth because they're so revered and there's so few of them. They also usually limit themselves to exploring the fifth layer since basically surviving the ascent from the sixth up is impossible, like you die. When a white whistle decides, okay, I'm going into... The sixth layer, it's called the last dive. Yeah, I just think it was a very well thought out stratification that we see here. It's very interesting to me that we take an item that's normally associated with emergency or seeking help, and we've instead turned it into a hierarchy. So as you said, the youngest students, the children oftentimes are the bells, and this is because they can be easily found. They're very passively asking for help by just sounding off their bells. And as we ascend through the ranks, we're seeing these different whistles and we're seeing the people that use them becoming more interesting. The white whistles often have very deep, interesting personalities. Yeah, the white whistles that we've met so far, which is admittedly is not that many, are super, super cool and very, very different in, in style and characterization. And as you said, because they are legends, they do often end up getting away with a lot. Yeah. We'll, we'll see yeah. Bondrude, for example. And, <laughs> war uh, crimes out here. <laughs> I, I remember texting you as, as I was watching this movie with just the what the fuck is going yeah, on. Yeah. yeah, but we'll talk about that. So let's actually get deeper into these episodes. Yeah, so I think the way that we're going to set this up is we're going to go through the episodes in chunks, sort of thematically. And we'll talk a little bit about what happens in the episodes and then sort of our thoughts along the way. And then at the end, we'll talk about the movie, the sequel movie, and maybe have some close thoughts about the upcoming season two. We've already kind of spoiled stuff, but like if you're here and you haven't watched Made in Abyss and you care about spoilers, then go watch it and then come back and listen to the podcast after because we're for sure going to spoil everything that happens in the show. Nothing that happens in the manga that, that hasn't been animated yet, but stuff that happens in the show is getting spoiled. All right, so let's start with the first episode. We already sort of talked about that moment at the end, but maybe I'll outline the rest of what happened. So we're introduced to this orphanage where Rico, our protagonist, lives along with a few of her friends. So Nat, Shiggy, and Kiwi are also part of this orphanage that's located at the Rim of the Abyss. And they're all in training as Red Whistles, so they dip into the first layer and collect relics. Uh, and the relics generate income for the orphanage. So the orphanage takes them in, gives them a place to live, but then also profits off of them diving yeah, into, child into labor, the baby. There's a little bit of child labor going on here, for sure. So in this first episode, Rico and her friend Nat are paired together, and they get separated in the first layer. And this crimson split jaw attacks Nat. So this is like one of the first insanely cool creatures that we get to see. Basically, any creature that we mentioned, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't watched the show, you should just Google to look at a photo of because they are just super fantastical and really cool. But a Crimson Split Jaw is basically like this large 
sort of dragon looking thing with like an enormous mouth that just like floats around. And the detail on it is actually crazy. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you see like the whatever the feathers or scales on it independently moving and the amount of time and animation that must have taken is just mind blowing. It's also wild to me that even the red whistles can encounter those kind of creatures. In I the think first this was layer. like, it's I, like yeah. oh shit. I think it started off that way because it was so unlikely that this would happen. It is this unlikely coincidence that gets Rico to finally meet Reg. Yeah. So basically what happens is that this crimson split jaw attacks Nat. Rico uses her whistle to distract it. And it starts chasing after her. And then this enormous, like powerful energy blast chases it away. And they find this unconscious robot boy that generated, that's the best way to describe Reg, he's just a robot boy, basically generated this, this energy blast. And so they take him back to the orphanage. Rico names the robot boy Reg. And after she takes him back to the orphanage, gets him settled in, he wakes up. She sneaks him to watch the sunrise over the city of Orth. And that's sort of the shot that, that we talked about at the beginning of the episode that I think is for both of us going to be just etched into our memory probably yeah, forever. Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing is here, Reg is an actual living relic. Yeah. And so when they bring him back, I think Rico is at least aware of the fact that if anybody finds out that Reg is an actual relic, yeah. he's just going to get immediately taken away and probably dissected who yeah. knows what. So that's why she does bring him undercover into the orphanage. And I don't know how the people above don't realize it because yeah. this guy is literally has a mechanical arm and yeah. like a weird helmet. That's another thing about Rico that I think is is interesting is that you're shown very early on that she's really passionate and really curious about the abyss so she has tons of notes she's really interested in her job as an orphan as a red whistle she wants to progress up the ranks quickly so when she meets a living relic like you said she's immediately just like oh you must be from the abyss i want to know more about you like you're my friend now we can't let anybody find you she reminds me of, you know how in My Hero Academia, Deku is like super earnest and mm -hmm. like when he's watching other people fight, he's like writing down yeah, people's yeah. quirks and like thinking about strategy and stuff. That's Rico with the Abyss, basically. Yeah, Just like absolutely. a super passionate protagonist. All right. Anything else about the first episode? Nope. Okay, cool. So we're going to cover episodes two through three next. And these basically set up how Rico and Reg are going to delve into the Abyss and set out on their adventure. So... Like Robbie said, the gang, which is what I'm going to call them because I don't want to name like all five of them, disguises Reg as an orphan and they enroll him as a bell. <laughs> I don't know how the people don't notice this because he kind of looks like a robot, but <laughs> yeah. whatever. And then two months sort of pass. So a black whistle named Habalg returns from the abyss and he's carrying a white whistle, which he claims was owned by Liza, who is Rico's mom. And also he's carrying a sealed document that only Rico can open. So Rico is told by Habog that she was actually born in the abyss and brought to the surface via a relic called the Curse Repelling Vessel, which is super, super rare, but supposedly it lets people survive the ascent, which as an infant she otherwise would not have. And she's also allowed to view the document that's sealed. And that very interestingly contains a drawing of Reg and a message from Liza saying that she's going to be waiting somewhere in the abyss for Rico to find her. Yeah. Now, I have to question at this point the intelligence of doing this at this moment. Like, okay, we're in an orphanage. It would be nice to know what your background is. But do they really have to tell Rico that, like, oh, here's this entire document telling you all about the abyss, as well as your mom, who's telling you to go to the bottom of the abyss right now and find her? 
So I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but obviously Rico takes it upon herself to start off on this quest with Reg. Another reason they take off on this is not just for Rico, it's also for Reg, right? Yep. Reg, having somehow been found in the abyss, the assumption is that he came from somewhere deeper. Especially paired with this information that we're getting, the drawing of him exactly. from, from Liza, right? Exactly. So he must have come from somewhere deeper. Leading us to questions of how did he ascend? How has he not faced something like the curse of the abyss? Where did he come from? What are his powers? And so from all of these things, as well as the fact that Reg has really no recollection of where he come from. Yeah, they had to throw the amnesia on there yeah, exactly. <laughs> to give so another like, reason for him to go with her. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it just, it motivates their quest. And so at least at the end of episode two, outside of episode three, they do make the decision to go into the abyss and they have an argument with some of their friends, right? Yeah, I think it's pretty reasonable from Nat and the, the other friends to be like, hey, you're like two 10-year-olds. <laughs> Just don't go into this super dangerous area that you don't have the qualifications to go in because that's the other thing. They're red whistles. They don't have the necessary clearance or the necessary experience to dive beyond the first layer. And obviously the plan is to go much deeper than that. Yeah, and so, then we get into episode four and we find out at the beginning of episode four that, huh, it seems like the other whistles actually knew that they were going to go down and just let them go as kind of a trial saying, if we can catch up to you, we'll get you back. Yeah. But it's like, really? Like, is this a good idea? And so just to sort of put a bow on episodes two and three, this is basically that classic call to adventure or the call to action that you see in fantasy stories over and over again. I mentioned Lord of the Rings. You can think of countless other examples where we have our protagonists and there has to be some kind of motivating factor for them to actually have the impetus to go on the adventure. And they do that. They reconcile with their friends. I think one of their friends gives them like a, a shitty map of the abyss. Yeah, it's yeah. like not that detailed. It's like, I don't know how he had that. But yeah, and then they're basically led to a secret entry point into the abyss. And thus begins the adventure. So let's move on to episodes four and five, where uh, Rico and Reg explore the edge of the abyss. So they descend through the first layer basically as quickly as possible, trying to reach the second layer. Again, they basically think that, okay, if we can make it into the second layer, then people will stop pursuing, pursuing us. us. Like yeah. We're not worth enough <laughs> that people are going to want to chase us through like super dangerous layers. So they are trying to do that as quickly as possible. They first escape from a silk fang, which is another creature that you should look up. And they run into Habog, which is the black whistle who brought Liza's white whistle up with him. And they find out that he had actually been sent by their friends to help them reach the seeker camp, which is basically at the deepest part of the second layer. Yeah, now this is daring because he does offer to help them. And they decide, nah, fuck that. They hit I don't him, they want hit with your the advice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a great turning point, I think, to the story where they had already been autonomous and they had decided that they wanted to go into the abyss. But when offered this help, they decide, no, we don't want to use that. Instead, we want to find our own way there. And we want to make our own path there just to show to ourselves that we can do it. And so their goal here is at least to reach the seeker camp. Now, the seeker camp... The camp's guardian, which Habog tells them about, is Ozen. And Ozen is this white whistle who had actually been the one to transport Rico out of the abyss when she was a child. So there is clearly some 
ambiguity to Ozen. There is a mystery around who she is, but we know that there must be some type of connection between Ozen, Rico, and likely Rico's mom, right? Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about Ozen once we get to the episodes where she's introduced, but she's a super, super interesting character. I think one thing this show does really well, it's building up lore, like we said, and this is another way in which it does that. It's mentioning, oh, there's this legendary white whistle named Ozen. She's somehow connected to you. Watch out for her when you meet her, basically. And so that's set up nicely in in episode four. They really do build up all of the white whistles, right? They, they really all have do. like very interesting nicknames. Like yeah. it's like what Ozen the Immovable or something like that. The Immovable Sovereign. Yeah. yeah, the Immovable Sovereign. They're really building up the hype to them. They are almost as much people as they are myth. Yeah, I think this is actually so I actually did want to talk about naming. So I'm glad you brought it up. I think in a fantasy story, I don't know if other people feel this way, but something that's important to me is that things sound cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you're creating a whole world from scratch, it has to sound dope. And I think Made in Abyss does a good job at that with the character names, with the names of parts of the layer. So the second layer is called the Forest of Temptation. Like that's sick. Or even the creatures. (laughs) The creatures are also like have really cool names. I mean, it's the same thing with something like Game of Thrones has, for example, like great naming structure for a lot of the the regions and a lot of the lore. I think I actually really passionately think that naming is super important for fantasy stories and and Made in Abyss does it really well. Okay, so after running into Habog and him telling them about Ozen and the secret camp, they part ways and continue on their journey without him. So Rico and Reg descend into the second layer, the Forest of Temptation, and they run across a bunch of corpse weepers, which are these like carnivorous birds who mimic cries of help from the prey that they're trying to catch. And I think this was the first time where we really got some intense, intense animation and gore on the screen. Because as soon as we see the corpse weeper, it had been somewhat lighthearted up to now. I mean, Rico had been attacked by the Crimson Splitjaw, but that really had no consequences on anyone. Whereas here... As soon as we're introduced to that corpse weeper, we see it over the body of a clearly now dead diver. That was kind of harrowing to see. It's the first hint that shit's going to get real as you get further. Like now we're past the first layer where they've already spent a lot of time as red whistles and they've descended into the second layer. And you need basically a, a showing right away that it's it's more dangerous. There's a reason that you have this you know, whistle stratification with limitations on which layers you can go to. And that system is actually in place for a good reason. Yeah, I had not. I mean, when I was watching it, at least, I was like, okay, we have to get up through level six and there's no way to come back from level six. But the, the hierarchy there had not really been cemented for me how dangerous moving into each different layer is. And it clearly compounds exponentially. And once we see the Corpse Sweeper here, we see that, you know, Rico is in danger. And we'll talk about the levels of danger for Rico versus Reg. Let's wait on that till at least we get to episode eight or nine. Yeah, sounds good. So after running across the Corpse Sweepers, they also run into these monkeys with red eyes that are like super territorial and, and chase them. I think they're called like imbios. And I also have a very strong image in my mind of what those look like because the, like the screeching noises they make as they chase Rico and Reg I'm just like not gonna forget and those they actually run into in the inverted forest which is the lower part of the second layer and first of all I love that name and second <laughs> of all I really like the design of it I mean it looks exactly what it sounds like a forest that's upside down and it's just cool it's just something 
straight out of your imagination as a child that would be in a fantasy world. That's right? exactly what I want to talk about. As soon as we got introduced to the inverted forest and we see the background art for this, the background art is actually insane. Like you see the motion of the water moving in the opposite direction. You see the trees swaying, but all of it is somewhat wrong. And the way that it was animated was just done superbly. Yeah, it looks really good. Okay, so we didn't mention how Rico and Reg survive any of these events. Yeah. And of course, it's due to this energy cannon blaster thing that Reg has. Basically, that's exactly what it sounds like. But the caveat is that he faints after usage. So he's basically fucking Megaman from Konosuba, <laughs> who just like shouts explosion and then yeah. just like plops and then has to be carried everywhere. And after using it in, in these blocks of episodes, uh, Rico names it the incinerator. Very good name, Rico. You're very clever for that. And How dare you. <laughs> and as they progress through the inverted forest, episode five ends with them reaching the seeker camp. And I also remember the shot at the end of that episode because Reg basically can like extend his arm because yeah. he's a he's a robot. And he extends his arm like to pull them both up into the seeker camp. And Ozen just like grabs his extended arm like as if she's basically waiting for them and it's already a moment of like oh shit we've heard about this person and that you know we don't know exactly what she's gonna be like but we've heard that she's potentially abrasive or scary and this is like the introduction to her right you know we really haven't mentioned character design as much yeah. right we should definitely mention character design because I think the character design of Ozen is crazy it's so good so you know Rico and Reg have this type of moe or like kind of chibi-esque nature to them you should definitely look them up. And again, that, that gives a sense to the show that it's going to be lighthearted. Usually the dialogue, it's like very childish and it fits the way that their characters are designed. But then we see Ozen, right? And we see someone that is shrouded in mystery. And once you see her face, it doesn't have any of the nature to it that the other children's faces do. It's like kind of blank. She has these very dark eyes with almost no whites to her eyes. And then her hairstyle also is just really interesting and weird. And there is a sense there that her hair may be hiding something. Yeah, she has a super interesting character design. It's one that you immediately look at and you're like, oh, this person's important. They look kind of cool. This person's pretty badass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're right. She has like a very pale face with kind of dead eyes. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. If you're a Monogatari person, which I'm skipping up again. Of course she, you are. <laughs> she looks a lot like Ugi. It's a character that kind of similar with Ugi, there's a lot of mystery behind and you're very, very curious throughout the progression of the story to learn more about their But background. she also gives off that like OP shonen protagonist yeah, vibe yeah, yeah, because yeah. she has that smile that you know that this lady yeah. could really fuck you up. Definitely. All right, so let's move into episodes six, seven, and eight, which really delve into Ozen and the Seeker Camp. So after this sort of scary introduction, Ozen allows Rico and Reg to, to enter the camp. Uh, and they meet her apprentice, Marulk, who's a blue whistle. And she's, I think, kind of the same age as as Rico and, and Reg. You will notice, you know, as the story goes along, that literally most of the characters seem to be about Rico and Reg's age. And you're like, how are these people all this way well, in the Well, to abyss? be fair, people that are in the abyss don't tend to live that long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, they're, they're dead pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, so. all the corpses seem to be older. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Marulk is a blue whistle who's, who's about the same age as them, but is already a blue whistle and seems to know a lot more about the abyss and how to operate in the abyss because she's Ozen's apprentice. So Ozen basically ends up testing Rico and Reg. So she tells them, first of all, that Liza's dead. 
And she also makes this remark, which I thought was kind of funny, but isn't actually funny of the story, which was that she considered abandoning Rico many times as an infant, carrying her up through the abyss, which honestly fair. (laughs) Yeah, but also why are you telling this girl this, man? Well, again, she's sort of testing like their mentality, their drive to to actually descend into the abyss. We We don't know know that that yet. And we we do quickly find it out that she is testing them. But she comes across as somebody who is just very, very insensitive. Yeah. And well, especially because that comment is made in response to, you know, Rico basically being like, hey, like, thanks for saving my life and like carrying me all the way up here. And then she's like, yeah, it was a really hard journey. And I thought about letting you die. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so Rico and Reg are there. They, they get to stay there. They befriend Maruk a little bit. Uh, Another really, really cool character design, by the way. And uh, at night while they're sleeping, Rico like gets up to go to the bathroom and basically encounters this strange, ambiguous creature that you can't really identify. And this is, a little bit of where the show starts to introduce horror elements, which we'll get into later. But it's basically what this is. She's walking alone at night and sees something scary and unidentifiable. And that is only explored later and revealed later what that actually is. Yeah. And then so the next day, obviously, Rico's like, what just happened (laughs) here, right? Yeah, basically. So Ozen calls them into her chamber and shows them the, the curse repelling vessel, what she used to bring, you know, Rico up through the abyss and reveals that the strange creature that she saw the night before was this literally just a lump of meat. And okay, so why was a lump of meat like walking around being all scary? So what she tells them is that the curse repelling vessel has a power to temporarily revive organisms. And so this lump of meat basically had been stuck into the vessel and was temporarily revived and then died again. And more importantly, now then we have to question, okay, well, did something about this happen to Rico? And so what Ozen also reveals is that Rico was born as a stillbirth. She was dead when she was born. But when she was placed into this curse repelling vessel and carried up again, she was revived, which leads us to the question and which Ozen actually verbalizes that you may not be alive for that long. We don't know how long this curse repelling vessel is going to act on you. And this leads to one of the conflicts between Reg and Ozen, right? Reg's just mad. And it's also one of the first, I think, moments in which we really see how much Reg cares for Rico because he's only reacting that way because Ozen is saying things that are potentially hurtful towards Rico or might make her not want to go on the journey. And he reacts. It's one of the first really emotional points of the story which there are a lot more of for sure but i think it's important in sort of setting up a foundation for their relationship and to kind of maneuver reg into this position of being a protector or a guardian for rico definitely after all this ozen concludes that rico and reg need training training arc baby (laughs) yeah so we we get a training arc. that's basically what happens so she basically just sends both of them to the inverted forest for 10 days and just tells them that they need to survive she also says that the incinerator should only be used as a last resort which makes a lot of sense because if they use that then they're defenseless they they have they have nothing else like reg is (laughs) useless he's he's out out for the count and rico can't really protect herself that well So it's really only a a last resort. And then she also gives them another relic, which is Liza's pickaxe, which they can use uh, also for self-defense when they don't have to resort to the incinerator. And then she also shares a a few more secrets of of the abyss after this training arc concludes and, and they survive. So 
she tells them that the abyss distorts time and specifically distorts your sense of time the further that you go down. So basically she in this way reveals that Liza might not actually be dead because even though 10 years have passed since Liza went on her quote unquote last dive into the sixth layer, she might be fine because of this mechanism where time is compressed the mm-hmm. further down you are. So it might have been much less than 10 years in her actual yeah, we're bringing life. special relativity into this. I know. It's it, it's just cool, man. Bringing like the, some time dilation, baby. <laughs> this, I mean, I, we talked about this on the podcast before, but I am a sucker for anything that manipulates time. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I, I just think this is cool. And I, I think it makes sense with everything else that you know about how, how the layers work. Yeah. And then uh, lastly, she also does the thing which we've been talking about, which is setting up some of the other characters. And she advises them to avoid meeting any of the other white whistles if they can. And specifically, she points out Bondrude. Now, we just mentioned how people don't really know, for example, what the effects of something like a rare relic, like the curse-repelling vessel is, and what that means for Rico. And that's because so much of what's in the abyss is unexplored is, is magical is fantastical hasn't been encountered by many people bond is we'll talk more about him a lot obviously during the sequel movie and, and during the last episodes but he's a white whistle and he's specifically interested in actually trying to scientifically figure out what different relics do and how how the abyss works but he's He's dangerous. And I mean, he, up. He, he's doing yeah. he's doing science like it was done in like the yeah. 1900s. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's doing science like no one has ever done science. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so before we wrap up this set of episodes, I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts and, and feelings on Ozen as a character, and specifically as sort of a mentor for? I mean, Rico and yeah. I, just as a character, I thought she was incredibly interesting. And as the first White Whistle we actually get to encounter, she delivers on that that mystery and that legend that we have been building the White Whistles up to. Now, I think the way that she was actually portrayed as coming all across as insensitive or uncaring for Rico was really good because she presents one of the first barriers of entry uh, to the remainder of the abyss. And she knows what she's doing. She knows why she's there. And I think as a mentor, she delivers that type of hard love to be able to stop Rico and Reich from going further if they're not capable of it. So by testing them, by making sure that they are actually trained and well enough to go deeper into the abyss, I think she does a really good job of that. And there is still a lot of mystery around Ozen. And as we'll find out later, she knows a lot more than that she actually lets onto. And I think that's interesting because it gives Rico and Reg a chance to go further and find their own answers. Yeah, there are also some hints about stuff that she knows that she is not letting on to. So, for example, there's, I think, a quick mention of how she actually made a promise to Liza that she would help Rico at some point descend into the abyss. So that's kind of tying together the the letter that Rico got at, at the beginning of the show and her journey. I also think, like you said, she does a good job of testing them because I think it is with what we know about the abyss and how dangerous it is. I think it would be crazy unrealistic for them to just descend layer by layer. I mean, I think it's already crazy having. unrealistic. Yeah, that yeah, it is. We have these 10 year olds like, yeah, it is. But at least you have mentors like you get in a lot of other shonen anime for example that that are passing down knowledge and, and here it's compressed right it's only a few episodes where we get that but given given that ozen does seem to at least recognize the motivation for our, our main characters to descend further she does let onto a little bit of information at least particularly the fact that she had said that liza was dead 
And that's actually not true because there was a gravesite, but there was no body at that gravesite, yeah. right? And in addition, the paper that uh, Liza's message was written on is nearly indestructible. Yeah. And so there is another mystery kind of hinting at the fact that Liza is somewhere deeper in the abyss and she is actually waiting for them. One more thing is that you mentioned how as the first white whistle that we meet, she really sets the expectation for how unique, how cool, how potentially scary, how much knowledge the, the white whistles have amassed. And I think what makes that very clear is the distinction and the comparison between her and Halborg, who we've already met. Halborg's a cool character, don't get me wrong. And but he's only he's a black whistle, so he's only one step in the hierarchy below her. And <laughs> He is so much less scary and yeah. at least seems so much less experienced that you can tell there's there's a gap between yeah. Black Whistle and, and White Whistle status. So let's move on to the essentially last quarter of the series. And this is where I thought we had some of the most enticing, some of the most thrilling moments. Yeah, so we'll break this up in, into two sections. So first we'll cover episodes 9 through 10, which basically contain Rico and Reg descending further into the abyss. So firstly, in episode 9, they traverse the Great Fault, which is layer 3. And here you really start to see some of the Curse of the Abyss at work. So first, Rico and Reg narrowly survive a bunch of encounters with different monsters and have to resort to using the incinerator literally right after Ozen was like, please don't use this unless you have to. But they had to do it anyways. So there's these like Madoka Jacks, these Amakagame. There are these Neritantans. Uh, and then the Crimson Splitjaw from episode one makes a return, which I also think is cool. The, the Crimson Splitjaw actually reacts to the incinerator being used and finds them after that, which I think is a nice sort of tie-in. And so, like I said, you really start to see the horrors of the abyss. So first, Rico has to literally cut herself out of the stomach of the Amakagame. And she also experiences the curse of the third layer while running from the Neritantan. So to escape from them, she basically has to go up a slight incline. And because you're so sort of in the midst of all these dangerous situations and all these creatures, you sort of forget that the curse exists for a second and the incline seems so minor that it wouldn't do anything. But immediately she starts to have hallucinations and vertigo, which are the symptoms of the curse of the abyss in the third layer. And I think the pacing up till now has been relatively slow and calm. There have been these abrupt moments of violence or increased anxiety, but up until now, Rico and Reg have not really faced many life-threatening situations. Here in this point, they right after all of them at once. <laughs> yeah, right after getting out of the secret camp, they're faced with a number of different things. And Rico is really at the point where she doesn't have the opportunity to rely on Reg anymore. Reg is unconscious. So she has to figure out how to survive this and we do get a sense that okay maybe Rico's not as useless as she comes across this episode is super action packed and it starts to if you have any sort of desire to see really dark fantasy this is sort of the episode that starts to show you that oh this show like might contain that of course we've already seen like the meat sack at night in yeah. the secret camp and Ozen and some of but the there's other a clear shift hints, here but there, yeah. there's a shift here for sure uh, and I think there's also a shift in Rico and, and Reg's relationship, which we already mentioned that he's really her protector, but it really comes to the forefront because at some point she has to rely on herself and you you realize 
that, oh, she's probably going to get hurt <laughs> if she only has herself to rely on. And so Reg is just very, very important for her general survival. I will say one thing is that all of the exploration of the third layer occurs in a single episode. And I think the pacing of the show is generally very good and I don't want anything to be drawn out. But I do feel like if they wanted to, and I don't know how it is in the manga, but theoretically, I think if they wanted to have a much longer show with a much deeper exploration of the different layers, it would be pretty easy to do so. I feel like there's so much there that it was almost like, oh, that was it for layer three? Like yeah. we're out of it already? I think fans of the show would agree with you. I will say the sheer amount of encounters that Rico and Reg have in this episode in the third layer gives enough credence to the fact that, okay, we can move on from it. So in terms of the pacing of the show, they've spent enough time in the first two layers to get acclimated to the world, to start understanding how they can move deeper into it. And because of the just number of times they almost died in this episode, I think it's a relief once they finally do make it out of the third layer. That's definitely true. And I, I guess I also will say that I think the third layer is the least interesting to me in terms of it's just how a chasm, it looks. It's just, yeah, it's just this giant chasm. It's literally called the Great Fault. That's what it is. But I think coming from this inverted forest and going into the Goblet of Giants in layer four, which we'll talk about in a second, those are super cool, super yeah. interesting. The, the layer after that, layer five, which is mostly explored in the movie, is also really, really cool. So yeah, it pretty much is. I think, I think it was there just the to punctuate. Yeah, yeah, I think it was there just to punctuate the fact that we're not in the first two layers anymore. This is dangerous. And we have to descend quite a ways. Yeah, so, we're basically only halfway to the sixth. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's then actually talk about layer four. So it's called the Goblet of Giants. And basically it's this like humid jungle filled with a bunch of concave discs. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know how, how better- It's to, a goblet. Yeah, I don't know how better to describe it. Yeah. We talked about how the last episode really sets up the dangers of the abyss. We're full on in, into the horror and gore, I think, in this episode specifically. And so the way in which we get to that is that Rico is poisoned by this creature called an orb piercer. They basically get in like sort of a fight with it and they try to evade it, but it seems to like read exactly where they're trying to go. Yeah. And Reg sort of protects her, but one of its needles still punctures uh, Rico. And she basically very quickly begins to bleed out of every orifice of her body. And I think the reason for that, right, is because Rag is trying to figure out a way to get them out of this situation. Yeah. He is struggling to do so, right? Because on one hand, he's trying to save Rico. He's trying to protect her. On the other hand, this creature, which is extremely dangerous, seems to be able to read their every move. And the only way he can think of escaping is to essentially put out his retractable arm and really quickly reel them up to another goblet. But by doing that, they experience the curse of the abyss. And again, this is one of the instances where we do see this contrast between Rico, who is, again, you know, we've been seeing her as having this mental fortitude, but we've never really seen how physically vulnerable she is and how yeah. different that is from Reg, who has this physical invulnerability. He's not influenced by the curse of the abyss, but he's more mentally fragile. He's more like emotionally fragile, it seems. He, he, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he's going or why he's doing this besides to protect Rico. So this discrepancy is really well contrasted here. Well, and also to add to that, Rico is really the brains of the operation. So the only reason they know that this orb piercer is dangerous and poisonous is because Rico looks at it and is like, oh, I've read about this. Like, I, I know oh, the shit's going to wreck us. Yeah, like I yeah. know what this creature does. 
And so that's what sort of kicks them into like an emergency mode where they, they try to escape and it doesn't work. <laughs> so <laughs> Rico starts to, like I said, bleed out of every orifice. Reg's like panicking and breaking down. Like you said, he's kind of mentally weak. So he's like trying to figure out what to do. And he basically tries to cut off her arm to stop her from basically the poison from spreading and, and her from dying. But she stops breathing halfway through. And as she does this, they're saved by another character who I think we'll talk about in a second. I think most of episodes 11 through 13 will will focus on, on Nanachi. But that shot basically of this Moe character in Rico with like blood coming out of her eyes is like pretty haunting. And I think the moment where he's literally breaking her arm. Yeah. And that's the only way that, that, like that a, Rico oh. and Reg can think of stopping the poison from spreading is to cut chop her, her arm. arm off. Yeah. But they don't have anything sharp. So the no. way that Reg is trying to yeah. chop her arm off is essentially just break it apart piece by piece. And that was actually traumatic to watch. Yeah. And so where in the first half of the, or you know, first three quarters of the show, there there had been this building uneasiness about how fragile our characters were. And it's surprising to me, at least, that Rico, up until this point, had been able to escape from so many dangerous situations with very few injuries. And now we get to the culmination of that uneasiness. And and the point where I talked about expectations at the beginning, the point where our expectations of Rico's humanity are finally matched by what we're seeing play out on screen. To me, I think this was a real moment or a point of realization. So we, we had realized that... Our protagonists are still just kids. They don't know how to deal with these situations. They're young and they're fragile. And Rico is made of flesh and blood and comes with all of the vulnerabilities that that entails. And finally, that the adventure that we'd been witnessing up until this point does have consequences. They had been able, through luck and other people's help, get through the first three layers without serious consequences. But we're now at a point where those consequences have finally hit home and Rico is essentially dead. Yeah. I mean, these two episodes do a really good job at basically making you realize this shit is real and they're going to have to learn how to deal with these situations or find help from another source because otherwise they're definitely not going to survive and make it all the way to the depths like they want yeah. to. So Reg had really been set up as Rico's guardian, but how much of Rico needs to be protected from outside forces versus her own curiosity? It really seems like her curiosity is the thing that's getting them into these situations. Yeah, I think I think it's a mix of both. I think on on the one hand... You agree to go on this expedition into the abyss. There's going to be creatures in dangerous situations and you need to be protected from those physically. And Reg is very good at that in terms of being able to use his extendo arms or whatever you want to call them, the incinerator if, if they need to, all these kinds of things he, he can do. I think she does also need some sort of protection against her curiosity. She's generally very gung-ho and you know wants to explore and, and learn more about the abyss because that's that's why she's doing this she's curious about her mom she's curious about what about reg she's curious about all these relics she's always had this innate curiosity and that can i mean that's the whole reason they're even going on this journey in the first place and it is very dangerous because of that and because, i mean we talked a little bit already about about reg's mentality and how he's not the the strongest mentally uh, and so that sometimes does come at odds with trying to tell Rico, like, maybe no, we shouldn't do this, Yeah, um, which I think is tough for him. 
I mean, I think it's impossible for him. Yeah. Really, the very first character that, that we're introducing that can say no to Rico is Nanachi. So let's yeah. talk about episodes 11 through 13. Yeah, so episodes 11 through 13, I think, are my favorite of... Did you fucking write Best Rabbit Girl in the show notes? I did, I did write Best How Rabbit Girl. How dare you? <laughs> is she not? <laughs> is she not Best Girl? <laughs> if you're a furry. <laughs> best Girl doesn't have to be a love interest. I just really like Nanachi. <laughs> she's a great character she's really cute i don't know i don't know what else it doesn't have to be a love interest she's just really cute she is really cute (laughs) okay so nanachi is nanachi no nanachi no nanachi (laughs) this is another endivore endeavor situation (laughs) and this look for anybody listening this is how the podcast is i have issues pronouncing (laughs) things and what are we gonna do a quick aside is my advisor and i have had this long running joke about how you say overarching or overarching and i know it's overarching yeah but i say overarching and it's just like a an inside joke between us now that is never gonna end and i'm never gonna say it the right way so nanachi no this isn't this isn't an inside joke i i say cantaloupe and really? I think it's supposed to be pronounced cantaloupe. That's cantaloupe. Yeah. And so I don't know why this is. My mom is always at cantaloupe. So every time I see this, this melon, everybody shits on me for saying it. And also, I think this is a Midwestern thing, but I don't pronounce my H's. So I always say huge and humongous. No, that's weird. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I've had a similar thing because I I did grow up in the States, but I wasn't born here. And so something like saying salmon always tripped me up as a kid i would always pronounce the l in salmon i was like why is there an l here if i'm not supposed to pronounce it so i still say salmon sometimes so anyways we, we got sidetracked talking about, about mispronunciation so at the end of episode 10 beginning of episode 11 nanachi basically tells reg to calm the fuck down and to basically give rico cpr so she breathes again and then she brings both of them to her hideout uh, and at her hideout they are also introduced to midi worst girl wow that's so fucking rude um (laughs) i don't know how to really describe midi but she's this like super deformed cat-like creature thing and nanachi tells them that both of them are hollows or basically young cave raiders who lost their humanity due to ascension up from the sixth layer and so in episode 11 they revive rico and basically use medicine to cure the poison from the orb piercer in in the previous episode in episode 12 we find out a lot about the true nature of the curse and the best way to sort of describe this is the way that nanachi does which is using the metaphor of uh the cloth so if you imagine being completely covered by a cloth that's sort of how the abyss functions so the curse is strongest as you push up against it. If you're under a cloth and you push all the way up against it and it's pulled really taut, it's going to break. And that's sort of how you can think about the the curse of the abyss taking a strain on your own body. The other way in which this analogy helps is that if all beings are under this cloth, there's some kind of force field or way in which beings that are really connected to the abyss can sense what's going on with, with the abyss and movements within that cloth and so this is sort of an explanation for why the orb piercer in uh, the previous episode two episodes ago seemed like it knew exactly where they were going to move it's actually because it didn't know because it was so in tune with their movements in the abyss yeah this is the concept of the force that we talked about earlier which is that there is this force something similar to gravity that other creatures can feel and they can act upon 
And even though Reg and Rico can't experience it and can't see it, it's always acting on them. So it's very clear that there's a lot to be discovered here. And as we're going deeper into the abyss, we're getting also deeper into the lore and the mechanics of this world. So after describing what this is, Nanachi also begins to explain some of her backstory and explain what Rico and Reg are up against. So let's talk about Bondrude. So actually, this explanation comes in, in the last episode of the season, episode 13. Episode 12 is left with this cliffhanger where kind of out of nowhere, Nanachi asks Reg to kill Midi. And... It is shocking because Mitty is obviously super deformed and like weird looking, but she clearly Nanachi cares for this being a lot and she used to be a human and Mitty is even shown to have some sort of affinity for Rico and you know there's no like obvious reason why Nanachi would want to kill her so we're left with that cliffhanger and then in the next episode her, her their backstory together is revealed and basically what you're told is that Bondrude, the the white whistle that we mentioned earlier, that Ozen was like, stay the fuck away from, duped a bunch of kids by taking them to the Ido front. Uh, the Ido front is basically his facility on the fifth layer. And he used them for a bunch of inhumane experiments related to the curse. So Bondrude is basically like a mad scientist that really just wants to learn about relics and how the abyss functions and all of these other things. And so he just used all of these kids to basically do that. We don't really know what his goal is, right? No, we don't. He's just performing these experiments, but we're not really sure why. It's not until the movie where we get a little more clarity into why he's doing this. But the experiments are brutal. And they're really they're, brutal. They're extremely, extremely dark. I mean, we've talked about some harrowing things in the show already, but... The image of Nanachi and Midi's backstory when they're like actual kids and they're getting like thrown up and down in these like elevators to basically test how the curse works and figure out what is the blessing of, of the abyss is just like so painful to watch. It's one of the most I mean, we, there's a lot of horrific things in this show. This is probably one of the worst, I think. Yeah. So the, the scene that we get to see is Bondrude will treat his facility like an orphanage, right? So these kids are growing up thinking that Bondrude is essentially a father figure. And only when they're ready for the experiment will his true character really be shown as this mad scientist. So what happens is Bondrude placed Midi and Nanachi in this compartmentalized box. So Nanachi is on one side of the box and uh, Midi is on the other. And he dropped them down into the sixth layer and then really quickly brought them up again into the fifth layer. And so this type of elevator, as you just described, caused the Curse of the Abyss to, to kind of manifest. Nanchi was transformed into this rabbit. and Best girl. And, yeah, exactly. And then Midi, the consequences that Midi faced are much, much more horrific, right? She's transformed into this creature and... Beyond being transformed into this creature, we find out that she's actually immortal. And Bondrude wanted to find out what he could do to actually kill her. So over and over again, he tried to kill Mitty. And we just get to see these absolutely crazy scenes where it's just like parts of her are spewed out everywhere. It's, and it's, it's extremely terrible. dark. It's super graphic. And basically, Nanachi, this entire time that they've been living together, has been trying to find 
some sort of way in which she can be killed so that she doesn't suffer anymore. And so she thinks that Reg's incinerator is the way to do that. Seeing that in action made her hopeful that this could happen. I want to really quickly touch on the blessing of the abyss, which is another mechanism of of the abyss that Bondrew discovered through his mad scientist ways. And it's basically what we sort of what we described where you need two people to trigger uh, this effect. And so this event occurs during the ascent. And if one person basically bears the entire burden of the curse, then the other person is spared the effects of the curse. And so as we find this out, this is showing that, okay, Bondrude is obviously super evil, but he's figuring out information that is actually important towards like anyone's survival that might want to at some point ascend from the abyss. And so obviously not justifying any of the terrible experiments that he does, but it does kind of highlight, and we'll talk about this more in the movie, but it does kind of highlight why other white whistles and other people are i don't know if okay with what he's doing but why he even is allowed to do what he does in yeah the first i don't place. know if they know what he's doing it's still unclear whether even ozen knows the extent to which yeah i don't know if she knows the extent but she knows enough to be like stay the fuck away from that guy yeah, to, yeah. to them as they're 100%. descending so he, i'm sure he has that reputation but yeah maybe they just actually think that what he's researching is vital and so or he's just scary enough that nobody wants to or he just has a nice orphanage man yes. he's just helping he out kids not in have, the fifth he does layer. not have a nice orphanage <laughs> okay so that's actually basically how episode 13 ends we get uh rag actually does kill midi it's it's pretty emotional but nanachi is very thankful i think in the end uh and then of course they ask nanachi if she wants to join their quest to find liza she has a lot of innate knowledge about the abyss and about how to survive in it so she's going to be super uh, helpful to them one thing we didn't mention about nanachi which i told you the other day which you didn't know and i was pretty shocked when i read is that actually the manga apparently was doing pretty poorly and selling pretty poorly when it first came out and it was pretty close to getting canceled and what saved it was actually the introduction of nanachi and how popular of a character she was which first of all i think is incredible because i think even without nanachi the setup and the world is so good and i was so instantly hooked that i can't believe that i was shocked i was shocked that other people weren't already enraptured by the fact that we have this very interesting tale very interesting world compelling characters and i i just i couldn't believe that yeah i couldn't either but another reason why she's best girl is because she saved made an abyss (laughs) i read this a long time ago so i don't remember the specifics but I'm curious if people know if Nanachi was in the original plan of in the original plan for the manga and if she was just introduced earlier to see like if it would help sales or if the mangaka had to basically change gears completely and like invent a character for the purposes of like trying to sell a little bit better. It, I would seemed, be super it seemed organic because the way no, yeah, that she, really she, well. she's added at a pivotal moment in Rico and Reg's journey, but she's also somewhat essential to their meeting with Bondroot. So she was really written in kind of organically into the story. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, so that's where the series ends. I loved the series when it came out. It was easily my anime of the year for yeah. that year when it when it aired thank god it won crunchyroll anime of the it year it did it did win the award i was really happy about that yeah. and so then we waited a bit well it was announced that we were going to get a movie so we knew something was coming made in abyss is actually good at that like announcing stuff decently in advance that you know that something's coming out which which is nice and so throwing shade somewhere or like throwing shades at the, the entire anime <laughs> industry just keeps <laughs> us in the dark forever okay so the movie dawn of the deep soul we've 
basically gotten this horrific introduction into Bonjud, and then you know that the next arc is going to be about him. He's in all the promotional material. You know he's in the fifth layer. They're leaving the fourth, going to the fifth. So you know the movie has to be about him. You know there's a lot of suffering in store for you, and there is. That that is what happens in the movie. So let's talk about the movie, even this though was, you hate anime movies. How okay? <laughs> how dare you bring that up out of nowhere? I do not hate anime movies. I just wish it were another season. This was well done. I think the sequel movies work well when the arc itself fits really nicely into a movie format. And I think here it does. The The whole Ido front arc that comes right after season one is really well contained in however long the wrong time of the movie is. Yeah, so just let me be clear. So there are three different Made in Abyss movies, yeah. right? So the first two are essentially just... They're recaps. They're recaps yeah. of the, the first 13 episodes. And the third one, as you said, we got it announced in 2019. It came out in Japan in January of 2020 and was planned to come out in the U.S. in April of 2020. Obviously, COVID had other yeah. plans for I it. I wish I could have seen it in theaters. Dude. Yeah, I had to watch it, like stream it. And man, I wish I'd seen it in theaters as well. Would have been so Just great. because I have to say the sound design in the movie is so yeah. good. Shout out again, Kevin Pankin. Kevin again. Pankin again <laughs> just hits it out of the park by bringing in some of the themes from the show, but yeah. also giving us some very, very interesting sound design. Really good stuff. So let's talk first about the new characters we get mm -hmm. in this movie. So we're first introduced to the Umbra Hands right as the the gang. Rico and Reg and Nanachi descend into the fifth layer. There's this really cool scene. Uh, I forget what the setting is called. It has another cool name, I promise. But basically, the Umbra Hands are Bondrude's group of Delvers that help him on missions, whatever, his his squad. Yeah. So what happens at the beginning is Reg gets in contact with one of these Umbra Hands. But at least here, we also get hints that something else is amiss. Because when Reg is trying to get some information from this Umbra Hand, he's unclear about where Bondrude actually is. He says he's not present. So let's keep that in mind as we move further into our actual meeting with Bondrude. All right. And then the other sort of main character that we haven't seen before is Prushka, who is introduced as Bondrude's daughter, which you can imagine will lead to a lot of suffering in the movie. Rip baby. Yeah. So let's go through a little bit of the plot. So after this encounter with the Umber Hands, they continue on into the Ido front, which is uh, his Bondrude's uh, basically base, home yeah, base. Basically forward operating base for the yeah. sixth layer. I... Uh, I, it, yeah, that's the other reason they have to go there. So at first I was kind of like, Ozen told you guys to stay away from this guy and you're literally walking into his base. What are you doing? But it's the only way to descend into the sixth layer is to go through the Ido front. So they don't really have a choice, which makes me think like Ozen knows that. Well, she, she, <laughs> she said, I think more just be careful yeah, how you interact probably. with this guy yeah. because he's sketchy AF. Yeah. So they basically walk right up and ring the doorbell and Bondrude, they meet him and he invites them into his base. Like we said, he sort of puts up this facade of being super fatherly and like inviting and a host. And but so it, he's, he's there, already there kind is, of doing there that. There is a, a deeper mechanic in place, right? Because somehow he knows too much about the actions that Nanachi yeah. especially is taking. Yeah. And at the very end of episode 13, as soon as Rag kills Midi, we get our first scene of Bondrude and we get yeah. to see what he looks like. And he's up against this wall of bulbs and you see a bulb that has Mitty's name on it go out. So somehow he's tracking all of our characters, yeah. um, especially the characters that he had had some impact with previously. And so he is already eagerly awaiting Nanachi's yeah. arrival. 
Yeah, I mean, he even has a line where he's like at the end of episode 13 where he's kind of just like, oh, you finally found a way. Like, I want to see you again, Nanachi, yeah, yeah. or something like that. Very foreboding. Okay, so they venture into the Ido front and Rico bonds quite a bit with Prushka and also Prushka's pet mania. I don't even know what mania is. Dude. <laughs> as soon as we got introduced to Prushka and she was like, yo, my daddy's the best. I'm yeah. like, this character is going to die. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Dude, this can't end well. <laughs> this is sort of death flags yeah. out of the butt. Yeah, not, not, not good. Not good. And so that evening, Rico bonds with Prushka, like I said, and Nanachi basically goes to Bondrud to basically ask him a few questions. And he asks her to be his assistant again and help him with his experiments. And her answer was kind of surprising, but she basically agrees and says that the condition for this is that he has to let Rico and Reg safely pass into the sixth layer. I wasn't expecting that, but clearly she's thought a lot about this and she already knows the true nature of Bondrude, right? Because she knows that unless she does something, he's not going to let them pass. And his smile and, and the way he says everything in response to her is you know up until that moment when we first got introduced to him he was this like very fatherly like nice kind of jovial character we obviously are not getting to see his face because it's hidden under this mask but in response to nanachi he kind of comes across as like ditzy like oh sorry i already like did this and what we see next is reg is essentially getting taken apart yeah well right before we talk about that you just reminded me <laughs> it's been a while since i saw the movie so you talked about Bondrud speaking, and that just makes me think of the way he says Subarashi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, huh. Like, if you have a movie, yeah, you yeah. gotta just look it up. It's so great. But it's like, it's crazy. There's oh, something yeah, yeah. very clearly dark and wrong with him. Yeah. And the way he says Subarashi yeah. is like, People's bodies will be getting taken apart. He will be getting he's eviscerated. Like and he's like, magnificent. Yeah, this is magnificent. Just, yeah. Okay, so like you said, Reg is getting experimented on, and there is this very, that's probably one of the most cringe-worthy moments. I don't mean that in like an embarrassing way, and like a, I have to cringe because it's like so horrific moments in the movie where we see Reg basically just getting like torn apart and his arm like gets taken off by like this collection of umbra hands in this lab and so then nanachi finds him there and prushka and rico also show up and when all of them meet up now prushka this is the first time that she's seeing something horrific happening yeah. and this is the first time she begins to question what is her dad doing and you get that same sensation of naivety from her that you got from Nanachi and Midi and all the other kids that Bondrud experimented on that you saw in the flashbacks in, in episode 13 of the show where they think everything's fine and dandy and at some point they realize it's not and that cognitive dissonance of realizing that your reality is not what you thought it was is pretty harrowing and so throughout the movie we see Prushka sort of have to I mean I like if you can empathize at all with that situation could you imagine just finding out that the person no. you would love or like <laughs> the person you looked up to is something completely different yeah. from what you would expect it. Yeah. It's it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Then what happens? They they all kind of coalesce and are able to set Reg free. I think they leave his arm there though, right? They do leave his arm yeah. there. Yeah. It's so already detached. The, the so only way they're lost. able to get out is essentially all the umber hands are still there trying to capture him. So they pull him out and <laughs> at the last second, Rico and Prushka are still there and 
In a pretty interesting turn of events, all the Umberhands start asking Prushka to get instead on the operating table. So we have to question, what is their motive and how autonomous are they? Basically then realizing that something is amiss, they, they escape the Ido front momentarily. They basically, Prushka helps them take a boat out. And Nanachi, Rico, and Reg basically rack their brains trying to hatch a plan to basically be able to defeat Bondrude. I want to mention here really quickly, you know, up until now, I had mentioned two or three times that the dialogue in this show is at odds with the dark nature of it. And I think right here in this movie, it was the most prominent dissonance that I had seen yet. You see Nanachi, Rico, and Reg just talking to each other casually, and Reg's arm is literally popped off. Like He's fucking <laughs> bleeding out of his arm. Rico has like missing teeth now. She's bleeding out of her face. Nanachi is like, if you guys don't kill this guy, he's going to assassinate you. Yeah. He's going to take you apart and he's going to put you into this little box, which we get to see later. And Prushka here is talking to her dad and her dad is kind of just calmly talking to her, basically saying, all right, well, you're going to watch now what happens because you're a growing young lady. Yeah, and you like, please don't like set our guests free again, kind yeah. of like very politely, and you know? Just, again, so like the, the the kind of childish, innocent nature of the dialogue is so at odds with the actual yeah. stuff that we're seeing go yeah. on. It's a real strength of the series, I think, yeah. this this contrast. Okay, so what, what plan do they actually hatch to, to confront Bondrude? So the trap that they set is that there are these stinger head nests, and they're basically able to lure Bondrude out. And then use basically Reg just like drops a large boulder on his face. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So what <laughs> happens in this really cool turn of events, they throw Bondrude into the lake. And this lake, because they're on the fifth layer, anything lower than the surface level of this lake is the sixth layer, right? So what happens is Reg with one hand attached to Bondrude and the other hand attached to a tree on the surface, pulls Bondrude up and makes him experience the same curse that he had been doing to all of these kids yeah. all of this time. And so this is kind of this full circle reconciliation where Nanachi is like, get a taste of your own medicine. Now we get to see this really visceral scene where Bondrude he transforms in the same way almost that Mitty did, where all of his flesh just grows. It's coming yeah. out of the helmet. And then in this last scene, Reg essentially crushes him with his boulder and says, I'm going to leave you with one last breath. I mean, we'll talk about this more at the end, but the fights in this movie are really good, yeah. which is like, this is not like an action-heavy series in a battle-type way, but all the confrontations between Bondrude and Reg are really good. Like, there really well there were some questionable animation. In, in some moments, the Sakuga is like, okay, well, this is not like full quality. Yeah, okay, well, we're not talking about, you know, the, again, this isn't an action-heavy show, but the, the action set pieces are pretty good for something that's not a, for something an action show. For something of this caliber, yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, so our guy Bondrude is just absolutely fucked post <laughs> post curse <laughs> and post boulder and you even see nanachi get excited about the fact that he like they did it so at that point it still feels early in the movie but you're like nanachi's excited and she was like skeptical so yeah, you're but like, on the other Maybe? hand and so you, you do realize that prushka is also watching here, yeah right yeah and so this is one of the darker things as well, that Prushka just watched her daddy get, get fucking fucked. annihilated yeah. by a curse and also by this giant boulder. And all of her friends now are celebrating this. Yeah. And you're kind of just like... Sucks to be Prushka. How, F's in the how chat is this happening? <laughs> this is pretty, pretty feels bad. Yeah. So 
then what happens is, like I was starting to mention earlier, one of the Umber Hands walks up to this like dead corpse and picks up the helmet that identifies Bondrud. And the Umber Hand puts on the, the helmet and you realize that Bondrud is actually transferring his consciousness between the Umber Hands. And so all the Umber Hands are actually just copies of Bondrud, right? They're not his entire squad of divers they're all copies of him that he was able to accomplish with some relic yeah uh as soon as that happened i was like what the fuck's going on yeah. like, this was some <laughs> yeah. this was some actual confusing shit where we were like how how is bondry transferring his consciousness and what is the relic is the relic the helmet and it's actually clarified that the relic is not the helmet but it's instead this other relic that of course rico knows about this yeah. called the zoolic and so Zoholic? Zooholic? Zooholic? Uh, no. <laughs> Zooholic? <laughs> Something like that. I don't know if you're saying it wrong or I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> who, knows? But, who knows? Who but knows? But whatever. Yeah. So this this other relic, the Zoolic, is essentially this room-sized contraption that allows you to transfer your consciousness. And what's happened is that Bondrude has assigned the helmet a significance. So as soon as another one of the Umberhands puts on the helmet, they essentially transform into another copy of Bondrude. And this loops back to the beginning of the movie where that Umber Hand was like, oh, Bondrude isn't present. And that's kind of strange wording. And you realize, okay, that the reason that it's said that way is because they're all copies of Bondrude. They're all sort of Bondrude in a way because they have part of his consciousness. But that specific Umber Hand is not the designated, you know, public face of, of Bondrude. And this is also one of, you know, a little later on in the movie, this is also another time where we get some exposition about what the White Whistles are. And you mentioned this before. And I think this is where this was clarified that the White Whistles Whistles are created when a person who loves you or a person with some relationship to you dies and wishes to transform themselves into the raw material for a whistle. And so Bondrude, quote unquote, the person Bondrude doesn't actually exist anymore. And he says that he had given up his own life to transform into the white whistle that he wears around his own neck. And instead, the relic that is transforming his consciousness is all that's left of the actual Bondrude. Yeah. I mean, my guy is such a narcissist that he became the sacrifice for his own white whistle. Yeah, that was some crazy shit where he was like, <laughs> like this is another level of experimenting yeah. on your own body. So what we find out is that this is kind of the turning point where Bondrude has now... My daughter, so, you're ready. <laughs> yeah, so my daughter, you're ready, basically. So so why is that? Because what happened is as soon as Prushka saw daddy get railed by a boulder... Is she was crying. Is that a JoJo's reference? Oh, God. (laughs) And so we're not going to make any JoJo's references here. And so what happened is that she essentially came up and she was crying next to his dead body. And this was the sign for him that that she loved him, right? That this was the, the, the point which she could forget about all of the potential things that he had been doing, even to Reg, and still was able to cry over his body. And so... We come to the point where the next scene is essentially Prushka on this operating table with a ton of different marked lines on her and Bondrude standing over her saying, remove anything marked out or demarcated by these lines. And so we realize mm-hmm. that, Horrifying. yeah, those death flags are actually, you know, They're all real. there for a reason. They're real, yeah. And so Prushka is 
essentially dismembered and stuffed her in, into this box. And they are very gory when they describe all of the different sections and why they're removing her. And meanwhile, and what your boy Bondrud is just like Subarashi. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> The, the reason that Bondrud has been doing this is this is the final stage of his experiments that he had started to conduct with Nanachi. And so we find out that Nanachi had actually been helping Bondrud disfigure and dismember these children because she somehow felt obligated to him. And this was a little unclear to me. Why is it? Was it like a Stockholm Syndrome effect or did she think that she was actually helping these kids in some way? What do you think was going on? I think it's probably a combination of some sort of Stockholm syndrome. Like you mentioned, I think that <laughs> that happens in traumatic experiences and this is pretty much as traumatic as it gets. So I think that's super reasonable to assume. I think also Nanachi is very uh, perceptive, very keen. I think if she knows that these experiments are going on anyways and she can get some sort of insider information on them, I think she's hopeful that in the future that will help her be able to save other people considering she doesn't have many choices in the situation that she's been put in. So probably a combination of both of those things is, is what I would say. Yeah, so we get to this very emotional scene where Nanachi essentially breaks down in front of Rico. Yeah, as feels super responsible. Yeah, as Rico is realizing the extent of what Bondrud is doing. And we get a question of, you know, what is, where's Prushka? She's, she's gone. She's disappeared. And so, you know, we, we get this, again, this confluence of all the characters. And one thing we neglected to mention is the next stage of the plan to now plan kill, now. <laughs> yeah, plan C to kill Bondrud is to recharge Reg. So what had happened is Reg is a relic. And in, in episode one, this is very cool how they tie it all the way back to episode one, where they had found Reg unconscious and the way they had brought him back was using electricity. And it, it was questioned, maybe it was the electricity that had caused him to lose his memories. But what happens here is that the characters decide the way to kill Bondrude is to recharge Reg because his incinerator is only down to like what Nanachi thinks is three or four more uses before he becomes quiescent again. Yeah, it's on low power mode. Yeah, like exactly. Your iPhone is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just like your iPhone, just yeah. like your boy Reg. There's also many mentions of his dick somewhere thrown oh, in. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. I totally forgot about the, the dick reference. There are numerous yeah. mentions of Reg's dick. I was watching this yesterday uh, with my partner and she was like, she just got fixated on this. She was like, why do they keep talking about? his dick yeah and and so okay let's let's move beyond that so reg gets recharged <laughs> we're not going to be able to move beyond that so reg gets recharged but in the process what happens is exactly what 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 rico was worried about that he loses his memories and becomes something more animalistic something darker something non-human yeah and so another part of this plan was that they were basically going to go back to the idol front so when when bondrud like revived himself or took up a, a new a new Ombra hand took up the mask. He was basically just like, come back when you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like essentially I'm going to wreck you later. Yeah, but. I'll wreck you whenever you want. And uh, so the, the plan that they hatched because Rico knew about the, the Zoaholic was that, OK, maybe we can just destroy the Zoaholic. And, and the way sort of to do that is by recharging Reg. Yeah. So we get again, as I was saying, this confluence of all the characters and Reg has this crazy all-out fight with Bondrude. And yeah. this is where we really get to see the extent of how powerful Bondrude is because Reg should literally be able to kill anyone at this point, has this incinerator, has all of these laser beams, and Bondrude is holding his own against Reg. And so he's really crazy powerful. So what happens is that Reg and Bondrude kind of get into this stalemate and 
Rag uses his incinerator because he has lost his mind. Rico, again, remember Rico and Nanachi are all still there, but Rag uses his incinerator anyways. But in, in the process of doing that, Rico tries to wake him up and he wakes up at the last second. And there's this giant hole now that Rag and Bondrude fall into. If you remember any descent, beyond the rim of the fifth layer now pushes you deeper. And what happens is we get to see the moment where Bondrude realizes this is the culmination of my experiments and himself ascends through up to the fifth layer again. And so in that process- My guy's fucking insane. Yeah, basically. in that process, we get to see where Prushka actually is. Unbeknownst to obviously Nanachi and Reg and Rico, Prushka had been dismembered and put into a cartridge and that was attached to Bondrude's back. And as he ascended through the layers, we get to see the transformation into the character similar to what Nanachi is, this, this kind of like animal, furry animal, whatever. And as Bondrude ascends and finally meets back up on the surface of the fifth layer, we see the ejection of the cartridge of what remains of Prushka and all of the characters come to the realization that Prushka had actually been dismembered and has very little time to live. And at this exact moment, they decide, hey, now would be a good time to just interject all of Prushka's backstory. So they give us this long flashback of how Bondru took her in, their relationship, how she was super shy and she was giving given a pet and then how she got her like birthday basically decided by Bondrude, how Bondrude basically grew to love her in his like fucking weird way and decided not to kill her. You know, all that kind of stuff is given to us right at the moment where Rico I think and love love is love is an extent. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think he, love he, was, air he, was, he was using her he, I think his love is only in the extent that he loves the raw materials for his experiments. Yeah, and and the potential for being yeah. able to discover something by using this this individual so that gets intercut right in between just to make you feel things about Brushka dying and then we get the rest but of the bro, there's a fucking scene where she's literally watching her own body parts get dismembered yeah. and she's like oh yeah that's my arm yeah, this really hurts. Oh, there's my leg. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Why and would the, you remind and me? And the about comedy that? scene where she's like in the middle of this. Ah, uh, that's. Oh, what is that anyway? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was hey, like, yeah, we didn't. Oh that. my god, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry in this moment. Yeah. What is happening? Yeah, we'll we'll put that th that little comment aside. But that scene was actually super emotional in terms of just watching Prushka have the realization of of what is happening and her body getting taken apart. They they did a good job cutting that in and making you feel really, really bad for this character, obviously. Yeah, and I just want to interject really quickly. The The reason that Reg, Rico, and Nanachi are stuck here, they can't just go beyond Bondrude and they can't just descend into the sixth layer, is that Bondrude tells them that there is a specific mechanism that allows us to go into the sixth layer, and it's you need to have a white whistle that you yourself own. And so Rico has her mom's whistle, but Bondrude basically says... Can't you use can't that. use that to descend into the sixth layer to go through this portal. You need to have your own white whistle. And this is why he knows, like, this is why he says, I'll be waiting for you because they can't go anywhere else. Yeah. And that's sort of how the movie ends and comes full circle. So there's, there's the end of, there's that flashback with Prusha's backstory. Bondrude is eventually defeated with the rest of the fight. If you want to talk more about the end of the fight, we, we can, but Prushka basically turns into the cartridge where he was, turns into the type of stone that is needed to craft a white whistle. And 
the implication or what Nanachi says is that this was intentional on Prushka's part because of her relationship with Rico and because of the realization of everything that had happened, um, that she wants to travel with the trio as they descend into the sixth layer. So it, it is sort of nice and circular that Prushka ends up being the key to them being able to descend further and was actually driven to that by Bondru's actions and by their nature. So there is also some some ambivalence I have about the end of the movie. So maybe we can talk about yeah. that. Uh, I think very, a lot of people have that. Yeah. So it's very clear that Bondrud is not dead. Yeah. And it's very clear that the trio had left the mechanism, the relic in place for Bondrud to get revived. And there also seems to be this type of reconciliation between Nanachi and Bondrud. So what do you make of all those things? Yeah. So that this is a really interesting and I think contentious part of the movie. So what I meant when I said Bondrude is like defeated is that that iteration of his body was basically killed and he's in a weakened state so he can't physically stop them from descending and they decide to just move on rather than destroying the Zoaholic or like burning down the whole facility and the last shot of the movie is them like walking towards the sixth layer and also seeing the Umbra hands sort of reconvene and like watch them basically. And Bondrude is there. Yeah. And Bondrude's there. The, yeah. the helmet is that signifies his his presence is there. So, yeah, I do think that that is a little bit strange. I think you can easily make the case on Bondrude's part that he didn't stop them because he was in a, A, in a weekend state. B, his main motivation throughout everything is that he just wants information. He wants to find out more about the Abyss and he will literally do anything for it. And he, I think it's in his character to be willing to let that go, to see where their journey goes and sort of... I think he also him. achieved the result yeah. of the experiment that yeah. he was waiting for. He figured out what the blessing of the curse was and he figured out how to do it. I have to say that... So it, it is somewhat implied that Rico is the one that allowed Bondrew to continue to live because, you know, Rag and Nanachi mentioned that, oh, you know, she is technically still the leader and makes the moral decisions. And so she let him live. I think on Bondrew's half why he let them go there's a lot of reasons like we just mentioned that you can make that argument i think it's much more unclear on rico's part i think really the only defense of it is one that they have some urgency to get to the sixth layer there's not a lot they could maybe do like i guess they could try to use reg's cannon again to blow up the zoaholic but that would take a lot of effort and risk maybe another confrontation with bondrud and i think the bigger reason is really just rico's moral compass like she is in some ways, like a classic anime protagonist in that she's very good hearted and kind and doesn't want to just exterminate people if she doesn't have to and kind of hopes that they will change. And you could say that that's naive, but I guess it is within her character. But that's really the only defense of letting Bondrude yeah. live that I can think of. I mean, I you know, I really hate the entire theme of innocence. I think it's overused. And well, and but, also this show is so brutal and yeah. they come up with plans to kill him in the first place that you would think that they could just follow through on them. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that's like I was saying, right? The, the concept of innocence is so overused in media. But I think here, at least, we get a sense that even though a lot of the situations that Rico has been put in are very brutal, it doesn't seem to have really impacted her character or her moral compass. She seems to be immune to these types of loss of innocence. And that's interesting. I think that it is Nanachi that was the one that wanted to, to be the one to actually kill Bondru just because of what had transpired between Bondru, Midi, and, and Nanachi. But 
there is this weird like 15 second moment where Bondrude, the iteration that gets destroyed by Reg, is dying. And he has this reconciliation with Nanachi. And what what do you make of that? I don't really know what to make of that. I mean, I think on his end, he's, again, his main purpose is all these scientific experiments. And I think he is, in a way, proud of what he was able to accomplish through Nanachi, with Nanachi, however you want to say it. And that is, in his own weird fucked up way, huge air quotes that is love like he did love nanachi and he gives her i mean he does give her his blessing to explore beyond the fifth layer and go deeper yeah he's a very fucked up character who does a lot of fucked up things but he does have a very consistent goal and i mean he was even willing to do it to himself so that part of it sort of makes sense to me i don't quite understand why nanachi or rico would ever forgive him or even if they think that maybe through this experience he has changed in some ways or his experiments are mostly complete even if you think that's the case or you're pretty sure that's the case like do you really want to take the chance like yeah, so many bro, more how kids, many other kids out here yeah, yeah like a lot of kids might suffer if you're wrong <laughs> so i don't know i think i think it is a little bit of a plot hole or i don't know if it's a plot hole but it is a little bit contentious that they didn't just try to at least blow up the zoholic but they didn't so we're we're moving forward all right so I wanted to quickly wrap up. So we know season two is coming there. We already have the first key visual. Super, super excited for it. Personally, I think that's coming next year. So I just wanted to ask broadly, like, what are you looking forward to out of the season? What's your excitement level for it? I don't know. I don't know anything about the manga. So I don't know, like, how much of the story we might continue covering, how much there's still left. But what are you looking forward to? How do you, how do you feel about the upcoming season? I mean, season? I'm just really looking forward to, again, the set designs, the adventure, seeing what is happening in layer six and below. In the first five layers, we had a sense of what was to come because, again, like every step of the way, there was a character telling them this is what's going to happen. This is what you can expect. At the secret camp, we had gotten some clarification from Ozen that the next few layers are going to be difficult, but here's a map explaining what's going to happen. And beyond the sixth layer, there's no coming back, and we don't really know what's down there. And so that's very interesting. I have to say the kind of motivation for all of these characters to go and make that leap and be able to say, we're probably never going to come back. We didn't really talk about that. I just feel like that, that takes a lot of mental fortitude. And I mean, maybe it's because they know that there is another civilization that, that Reg comes from that's down there waiting for them. There is another potential home that they have, but they can't ever go back by any mechanism that they know currently. I guess the the one defense of that is a like Reg can he's not really affected by the curse so he potentially can so it's really Rico. Yeah, I don't think Reg's out here being like yeah fuck Rico bro. Yeah, Rico's the <laughs> one that is really making that decision and she, it's always been consistent in her character to want to go headfirst into the adventure. I, th- I think the other thing on top of Rico's personality is that we do know that things relics like the um curse repealing vessel that she was actually brought up in exist so of course everybody thinks you can't come back but it's not impossible there is there are potentially mechanisms or i mean we've also seen bondrude's creations the the, the cartridges so and there is hope i there mean is one, hope. Thing, one thing this show is really good about is never actually destroying all hope yeah. nanachi for example is still hopeful that she can bring midi back to life Enrico, as the eternal optimist, is like, yeah, we'll definitely get that done. <laughs> yeah. 
I think personally, I'm excited for, you know, I love the lore of this world, so I'm excited to to see more about that. I'm really excited to see what the next layer looks like. I hope it has a really unique design that sets it apart from from the others that we've seen. We've also had mention of some of the other white whistles, so uh, I'm assuming we're going to get to meet them as well at some point. I'm really excited. The two white whistles we've seen so far are super dope, so I'm excited to see what their sort of philosophy is and the way in which they explore the abyss. And obviously, I'm very excited to get more hints at uh reg's true origin and his nature and what the relationship between him and liza is and what you know if if rico and and liza are actually going to meet should we wrap it up there i'm ready to end all right <laughs> let's uh, that I'm was ready a defi- to finish that daddy was a, <laughs> that was a definitive answer don't ever say that again <laughs> all right so that's going to be all from us this episode we love made in abyss so hopefully this encourages you to go hopefully you've already seen it by the time we're listening to this but maybe this will encourage you to go watch it i mean if you if, if you, you haven't, haven't seen it at this point you basically yeah. just listened to the entire yeah, yeah we just <laughs> gave you the whole description of it um so yeah subscribe to the podcast hopefully you enjoyed this we're available uh everywhere you get your podcast apple google spotify stitcher all the usual places uh, it would help a lot if you went on to uh, Apple Music and uh, left us Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, and uh, left us a review on there. Uh, we love reading those and we love interacting with people. We're available on Twitter at BakabanzerPod. Um, check out our website as well. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Isekai. Somehow, I fucking agreed to talk about Isekai with you agreed. With Robbie. You proposed it. It was baby. actually my idea for some reason, but I know Robbie's stoked to do an entire episode about that. Hopefully, so. I can make it worth your time. Yeah, so we're going to be doing that. Otherwise, we've been the Baka Banter Lads, and we'll catch you all in the next one. Okay, what's the abyss? <laughs> we were talking about Maiden Abyss and we haven't defined what the abyss is. So, it's my the abyss, asshole. Subarashi.